Grab your Bible, if you would, and open with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to build on the foundation that the Ivisters read for us in the, uh, the Advent reading just a little bit ago. We're going to focus specifically on Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. But for context, what I want to do is back us up to verse 39. So I'm going to begin reading Luke chapter 1, verse 39, although the majority of our attention is going to be focused on verses 46 through 56. The word of the Lord says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The title of the message this morning is simply just magnify. Magnify. And when you think of the word magnify, it's likely perhaps that you may think of a magnifying glass. Right, like maybe the old school Sherlock Holmes type with a you know wooden handle, or maybe you think of the magnifying glass that perhaps you used in biology class to study insects, or maybe the, the magnifying glass you used perhaps if you were a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout. But regardless of how you use a magnifying glass, the role of a magnifying glass is essentially the same, right? It's to take something that is incredibly small and make it appear larger. Take something that is small and make it appear larger. So you might use one to read the fine print in a Bible or something you're reading. The function is the same, to make something small bigger. In our text this morning, if your Bible is like mine, it may have the heading above verse 46 that says, Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat. 
Now the word magnificat is Latin, and it means magnifies. So Mary's song seeks to magnify. Mary's song magnifies. Her song magnifies the Lord, we see from verse 46, which should give us pause to ask this morning, well, is what Mary doing then, is is what she's doing, is, is it then to take something small and make it appear larger? If Mary is magnifying the Lord, if this song magnifies the Lord, then is the role of this song to take the Lord who is small and make him appear larger than he really is? And if you are a Christian here this morning, or if you know anything about the Christian faith, that might sit a little awkwardly. You may think, well, wait a minute. Is she trying to take the Lord who is small and make him appear larger than he is? Is that what's happening in the Magnificat? And I would argue that it's not. And it's not for several reasons. First of all, think about Mary's experience. She has already experienced something amazing. As the Ivisters read for us just a few minutes ago, Here in the Advent reading, God has sent his angel to Mary to reveal to Mary the news that although she is a virgin, she is going to have a baby. And this is not just any baby. This baby, this child, is the Holy Son of God, the Redeemer of humanity, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. She's just experienced that. And that is no small thing. And then she does what oftentimes I think pregnant women do. She goes and visits relatives and she celebrates with others who will get excited about this pregnancy and who will rejoice with her. And no sooner does she get inside the door to Elizabeth's house than Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. The baby inside Elizabeth leaps for joy and Elizabeth blesses Mary. Just look at verse 42. Blessed, she says to Mary, are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, and although she doesn't know the backstory. She doesn't know what's happened to Mary. The Holy Spirit makes it clear what's happened to Mary. And she says to Mary, you are blessed by God and your blessing is also seen in the fact that you believe the Lord. The Lord has delivered a message to you. You believe the Lord and so you are blessed among women. Mary is experiencing really supernatural things that are happening. The angel visit, her conceiving from the Holy Spirit, and now Elizabeth greeting her like this when we have no indication that Elizabeth knew anything that had happened. And I point all this out to say that Mary has just experienced some incredible things. She has just seen God at work. 
And so when she says, my soul, in verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, I don't think what she has in mind is taking God who is small and trying to make him appear large. Because she has just been overwhelmed with just how big God is. And so... What is it that Mary is doing in the Magnificat? Well, rather than taking something or someone small and making him appear big, what Mary is doing is taking someone big and making him unmistakable. So in this Magnificat, Mary is drawing out the attributes and the workings of God, not to highlight something that is small and make it big, but to draw out something that is big and make it understandable, make it unmistakable. She's pointing to these incredible realities and saying, I want you to look at this and remember this, and I'm going to celebrate this. Sort of like if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, right, and you kind of peer at the Grand Canyon and your senses can't quite take it all in because it's just too massive. The detail is too great. And as your brain's trying to compute everything that's going on, perhaps a guide or someone there or maybe the the information that you have on your phone in front of you says, oh yeah, that that little thin little line way off in the distance, that's actually the Colorado River. There's actually a significant river, a large river. But as you begin to look at that river and you begin to focus in on the river, you begin to see the depth perception. You begin to see how far it is away that you truly are. You begin to appreciate the magnitude of the Grand Canyon more, not just by abstractly staring at it, but by having certain characteristics and attributes pointed out about it. Which I would argue is exactly what Mary is doing in the Magnificat. She is taking God who is infinitely huge and really in so many ways beyond our comprehension and she's pulling out various workings of God and various attributes of God and she's saying remember this and I celebrate in this and I delight in this and by drawing our attention to these various attributes we're, we're better able to put our arms around the magnitude and the glory and the wonder and the splendor of who God is and further I would argue That these attributes of God that she's pointing out and these characteristics and these workings of God are not just arbitrary attributes. Rather, they are connected to the incarnation. They're connected to the birth of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that more here in a minute. But Mary takes all of this, this incredible experience of God, and what does she do? She puts it in a song. It's no accident that magnifying God, celebrating the glory of God in the Bible, so oftentimes happens in song. When God saves his people, for example, at the edge of the Red Sea, and God closes the Red Sea over top their enemies and destroys their enemies, although he's brought them through safely on dry ground and led them out of slavery and out of bondage, what do the people do? They sing. Miriam, Moses' sister, picks up a tambourine and begins to lead the people of God in singing to God and celebrating all God has done. 
And throughout the Old Testament, when the people of God would gather for feasts or celebrations, they would magnify God. They would celebrate who God is, and they would do it in song. Which is one of the reasons we do the very same thing today. The fact that we sing when we gather is not a product of North American 21st century Christianity. Christians for hundreds of years have worshipped through singing. The people of God are a singing people. Even those who think they can't, right? We're called to be a singing people. We're called to be a celebrating people, a magnifying people. And one of the ways we magnify God is through song. I mean, think about it for a minute. What, what happens, let's say, for example, in in a, in a sporting event, maybe a, a basketball game or a football game, and, and there is a, a kind of a nail-biter right down to the last second. At the last second, your team wins. And what happens? Well, the band begins to play the school's fight song, and everyone celebrates, and people are singing the fight song, right? They're celebrating this victory in song. That's kind of what's happening here. Mary is overwhelmed with joy as she is confronted with just how amazing God is. She's had this messenger from heaven, the angel coming to deliver God's message. And then she goes to visit Elizabeth and Elizabeth confirms the message that she has heard. She's likely feeling, you know, I'm not alone. God is is true to his word. I haven't dreamt this up. Maybe she's overcome with excitement as she is reminded again that this baby is in fact the Messiah and so she sings. And if you're looking at verse 46 and thinking, well, wait a minute, Eric. It doesn't say that she sang. It says that Mary said. She didn't sing this, it says that she said this. I would just draw your attention back to Exodus chapter 15, the narrative after the Red Sea closing over the enemies of the people of God and the people of God being freed. And in Exodus 15, we read that Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, the structure there is the same as it is here in Luke 1, so I would argue that clearly here in Luke 1, this is a song. And to say that Mary said is just a common way of saying what someone referred to in song. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to point out three themes from this song. And the themes aren't necessarily in sequential order. Um, They're essentially just themes that arise out of this song. I mean, this song we can sort of kind of divide up into parts, um, but essentially it's kind of all mixed together. And so these three themes kind of are highlighted in different times, but we see all of them throughout this song. And these are themes that celebrate the salvation of Jesus, but also magnify God in sending Jesus, which is our goal this morning. It's not just to say, oh, there was a baby in a manger 2,000 years ago, isn't that nice? Or, oh, isn't it sweet that Jesus was born so that he could die? All of those things are true. This morning, I want to see as well this kind of third dimension, as this is our third message in our Advent series, and 
This morning, I want to focus on the glory and the grandeur and the magnitude of God in providing Jesus for us. Our first theme this morning, and this is profound, but God is big. God is big. So Mary is magnifying the bigness of God. Like a telescope that takes something that is incomprehensible and brings it closer to show off its glory, that's what Mary is doing here. Mary's caught up in just how big and glorious and wonderful God is, and her song is her way of bringing the bigness of God close. I mean, just notice how many times in this song she refers to God. Verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich. He has sent away empty. Verse 54, he has helped his servant in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers. You get the feeling that this song is not about Mary and her, her blessedness nor is it about how wonderful Joseph, her fiancé, is. Nor is it how striking the angel was to look at. This is all about God and his glory. God and his bigness. About how he has rescued his people. In fact, in this Magnificat, there is a striking similarity to Psalm 103 will be on the screen behind me, and I apologize already. The, the, the words look so much bigger on my computer screen in my office, <laughs> so much smaller on the screen here today. So just imagine this is a way of magnifying, right? You're just taking something small and just try to pretend it's bigger. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Doesn't sound like the beginning of the Magnificat. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is restored like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We could read on, but you get the point. When the people of God see the bigness of God, we tend to sing, we tend to celebrate, we tend to magnify and let others know about his glory. Now, you may say, well, I've never really done that. I've never really celebrated like that. Never really broken out into song like a you know, Disney princess or Bing Crosby and White Christmas. You just kind of break forth into song. I've never done that before. 
Well, it doesn't mean that you have to necessarily audibly break forth spontaneously into song. Although there's an element in which when we gather together for worship and we sing, this is precisely what we're doing. But we're called to magnify the glory of God through our lives, through our thoughts, through our priorities. When we live according to the pattern of Scripture and contrary to the culture around us, we are demonstrating that there is a a magnitude of weight and glory in the work and character of God that is superior to the glory that can be received any other way. We're demonstrating that there is a greater king than ourselves, or fame, or riches. When was the last time that you sat still for 10 minutes and just reflected on the glory and the bigness of God? Let me encourage you, even this week, just put it in your phone. Not right now, but later. Ten minutes to reflect on just how big God is. Or even this week, as you spend time in God's word, pay special attention to the bigness of God. Underline the ways that the Bible talks about the glory or the magnitude of God. And we see this most specifically in the way God chooses to save. Whether it's in the Old Testament, God choosing to save his people over and over and over again. Or most poignantly in the person of Jesus Christ, we see his salvation. We see God's bigness on its most clearest display in his provision of Jesus. In this baby born in Bethlehem. You see, bigness is important when we need saving. And Mary is clear that she needs salvation. Look again at verse 47. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see, God did not choose Mary because she was sinless. She was not without sin. She was just another God follower like so many others. And Mary recognized her need of salvation, but she also recognized her unique role here, that she would be the one who would give birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And this is why Mary would magnify God like this, because she recognized the way God saved her. She was humbled by the way God would use her. Mary magnifies the Lord because of Jesus. And then in verse 48 and following, you can see this kind of progression of for he has looked. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Mary begins to give the reasons why her soul magnifies the Lord. Just look at verse 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So although God is big, Mary recognizes God is not too big to look on the needs of his people. Just love her words here. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. 
She is glorying. She's marinating in the wonder that God, although infinitely large, would remember her. That he would look on the humble state of his servant. God sees the lowly. That God sees the forgotten. That God sees the marginalized, maybe the oppressed. In fact, this has a very similar tone to Exodus 2, 23 through 25, when God's people are enslaved in Egypt and they cry out for salvation from the Lord. And it says the Lord heard their cries and he remembered his promises and the Lord saw and he knew. And this is the same truth later on in Israel's history that Hannah clung to. You remember that hundreds of years before Mary, Hannah and her husband had longed for a baby. And when God eventually blessed them with a child, Hannah prayed to the Lord, and this was her prayer. And I want you to just notice the similarities with Mary's song. Hannah prayed this, my, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. I talk, or talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt in the horn of his anointed. There's so many similarities between that and Mary's song here. God looking on those who are self-sufficient, those who think they have no need of him and him, and God removing them and God wiping them away, and at the same time, God looking on the needy, God looking on the oppressed, God looking on those who are utterly dependent upon him, and God strengthening and restoring and helping. And this is the same message The same theme of God that Paul proclaims when he writes in 1 Corinthians 1 to all of us under the new covenant. When he writes and says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, God often uses the weak and the unexpected. Just remember, according to Luke 5, Jesus came not for the healthy who think they have no need, but for the sick who recognize how desperate we are without him. And so maybe you're here this morning and you are wondering if God would ever have need for you. If there would ever be a place for you in the kingdom of God. If God would ever choose to save you. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking this morning, you know what, I don't have much to offer God. Like my life has been pretty broken. I've struck out more than I've had base hits. If things have not gone well. But I would argue if that's where you're at this morning, you're missing the point. The point is that we have nothing to bring to God. This is why he came down to us. This is why he chose to take on flesh. He chose to live among us. He chose to hang out and identify with those who have nothing to offer. So that through him we might be brought back to God. It's the song of hope that the people of God would sing. O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. O come, God, be with us and ransom us. Why? Because we can't ransom ourselves. Because we're helpless without him. And then in verse 50, Mary's focus seems to shift from magnifying God for what he has done for her. And now she begins to sing about what God, God has done for all his people. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. This is a theme that shows up over and over again in these verses, but this is our second theme this morning, and the theme is this, God is strong. God is strong. And just look again, scan your eyes over verses 50 through 53, and you can see all the ways that God's strength is displayed, right? He gives mercy to those who fear him, and he is strong enough to sustain that mercy from generation to generation. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. And in his strength, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. In his strength, verse 52, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. And in his strength, verse 52, he has exalted those of humble state. In his strength, verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. And in his strength, the rich he has sent away empty. 
But again, all of this is more than just Mary celebrating historically the ways God has worked. This is more than just Mary remembering the stories that she had been taught from the Old Testament as a young girl. I believe Mary is recognizing that all of these realities, this extending of mercy and showing strength and scattering the proud and bringing down the mighty and exalting the humble and filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty, all of these things are going to happen because of this baby, because of Jesus. All of this will be brought to fruition. And Mary is so convinced that God will keep his promises to provide this child. And she's so convinced in who this child will be that she can say not, I think God might scatter the proud and build up the humble. Or I think God might fill the empty with good things and send the rich away hungry. She can speak of it as though it's already happened. Because she is so confident and sure in the character and promises of God. She is so certain that God will keep his promise and that eternity will hinge on this child. Because she knows this is how this baby will affect the world. Through this baby, God's mercy will be extended to those who fear him. By fear him, that doesn't mean those who are frightened by him. It means those who reverence and esteem him above everything else. We see God's strength on display through Jesus in verses 51 and 52. The strength of God's arm is seen. We see the strength of God through the life and ministry of Jesus. We see how through Jesus' ministry, God, it seems, scatters the proud, and the thoughts of their hearts. This connection with the arm of God in verse 51 doesn't mean that God physically has an arm. That's an anthropomorphism. We, We know that God has no physical body, has no physical, literal arm. But what it means is that the way some people will reject Jesus in their minds and hearts, will be the way that God scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. It will be like God sweeping them aside with his his powerful biceps. And we know from Jesus' ministry that many more people heard Jesus and rejected him than heard Jesus and received him. Most walked away thinking he was crazy. So in the thoughts of their hearts, their brain told them, this guy is crazy. And if you doubt that that happened, just read John 6 this afternoon. What was happening as people rejected Jesus and thought, this guy's crazy, he's ridiculous. I'll tell you what was happening. What was happening is that God was scattering the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. This is why Peter, building off Psalm 118, where the psalmist talks about how there would be a stone who would be set up that would become rejected, and yet this rejected stone would become the capstone, the most important stone in the entire building, a stone referring to Jesus. And Peter later in 1 Peter chapter 2 would write, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion, a cornerstone, a chosen and precious stone, that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
So the honor is for those who believe. But if you do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What's Peter saying? Peter is saying, hey, in the Old Testament, the psalmist said that there was a stone coming and that this stone would be rejected by people. And those who rejected him, for them, this stone would cause them to stumble. They would fall. And yet, for those who believe, this stone would become the most significant stone in the building. This would become the capstone, the cornerstone, the foundation stone. And now Jesus has arrived, and through Jesus, God has brought down the proud and the arrogant and the self-important and the independent who have tripped over Jesus. Even today, I think it's ludicrous, right? That this man who lived 2,000 years ago would have any bearing on life or eternity or ethics or morality or faith or religion today. Maybe he was just a good teacher, but certainly we're not called to like orient our lives around him. We aren't called to confess our sin. Surely he was not the son of God. There are many ways to God, many religions that teach the same thing. A stone has become a stone of stumbling. Just as was predicted several thousand years ago. And at the same time, according to verse 52, he has not only brought down the mighty from their thrones, but he has exalted those of humble estate. He is inviting into his kingdom those who recognize their need for him as he opens their eyes to do so. All of this, again, sounds really familiar to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, this baby to be born in Nazareth, in Bethlehem, would turn the world upside down. He would change the rules of the game. No longer was hope reserved for the successful. Now hope would come to all by believing that Jesus is the Son of God who truly died for the sin of all who believe. Through Jesus, as we see in verse 53, the hungry would be filled just as those who hungered and thirst for righteousness in the Beatitudes would be satisfied. But the rich, as Mary rightly accounts, the rich, not meaning necessarily those who are financially wealthy, but those who trust in their possessions, in their things, in their education, in their experiences, rather than God, these people are sent away empty. And they will find in the end that everything they trusted it in was simply a mirage. 
Which brings us to the final theme from Mary's song this morning. She's magnified God for his bigness. She's magnified God for his strength. And now she celebrates the fact that God is faithful. She magnifies the faithfulness of God. Look at verse 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. You may remember that almost as soon as Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God promised help to provide salvation. He promised to rescue his people. And here, Mary rightly connects those promises with this child. And she says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. In fact, a literal translation of verses 54 and 55 could go like this. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel to prove he has not forgotten mercy to Abraham and his seed forever, just as he spoke to our fathers. So if you remember, again, we began this Advent series in the Garden of Eden with the first man and the first woman. And although they enjoyed the bliss of an unbroken relationship with God, they chose to rebel, didn't they? They chose to want to be God rather than to honor God as God. And as a result, the world, including you and me, are thoroughly affected by sin. And yet, God promised, even in the same conversation where he addressed their sin, he promised to send a rescuer, a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would forever end the devil. And God is faithful. And Mary recognizes that, that God has remembered his servant Israel. He's remembered his promise. He's remembered His promise to send mercy and be merciful to his people. And so, in the fullness of time, true to his word, God provided his son. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law that we might be made children of God. And Jesus did not come in the form of a Jewish special forces warrior as a, as a socially elite influencer. He came as a baby, as a middle class baby, born into a fairly normal Jewish home. But he was born by the power and the divine work of God, born as God in the flesh, born to live without sin, which he did, fully satisfying the righteous requirements of God's law, God's law that we have broken. Jesus willingly surrendered his life to die for sin, a sin that he did not commit. But he died as a substitute. 
He died in the place of everyone who by faith trusts in him as our only rescue from sin and eternal separation from God. He died to bring all believers back into a right relationship with God. But he didn't stay dead. After three days, God the Father raised him from the dead. And after ascending back to his Father in heaven, Jesus is now currently at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for us. He's waiting to return, to finally judge the world, to create a new heaven and a new earth where all who believe will spend forever and ever and ever and ever in his presence without sin and without suffering and without sorrow of any kind in fullness of joy that we can't even begin to fathom. To live life as it was meant to be. And so, if you don't trust in him today, I would beg you on behalf of Christ Jesus, born in Bethlehem, to be reconciled to God. To trust in Jesus as your only salvation, as the only means by which you can be made right with the God who made you. And for those of us who do believe, let us live this Christmas season and every day thereafter to magnify the glory of God, to show the attributes and character of God to a watching world. To celebrate the glory of God. And through our lives to be able to say, should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy of ours survive. And yet even then, may our lives only exist to declare the glory of God. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will never cease. All glory be to Christ. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we're going to declare that in song together as we close.